Good evening, everybody. This is Barbara McCann Girl Speaks Podcast. And thank you so much for uh, supporting uh, the Canada Girl Speaks Podcast. I'm excited on tonight, on this evening, um, to welcome a uh, my guest on this evening. Um, he is the newly uh, sworn in district attorney for Navarro County, Mr. Will Thompson, DA District Attorney Will Thompson. So um, I'm going to ha- thank you, Mr. Thompson, for being on Canada Girl Speaks podcast. I'm going to give you the opportunity to introduce, have the, uh, introduce or tell you a little, tell a little bit about yourself to the listening audience. So thank you so much for being on Canada Girl Speaks podcast. Well, thank you for, for having me, Miss Kelly. I appreciate you uh, inviting me and, and taking the time. I'll take just a, a few minutes to give you some uh, background, and then maybe we can sort of get into uh, my thoughts uh, going forward from here. Um, uh, I was what we refer to affectionately as an Army brat. My, my father was a career Army officer, so I, I grew up uh, living around the world. Uh, went to undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin on a Marine Corps scholarship. So as soon as I graduated in 84, uh, I was commissioned as a Marine Corps officer, spent nine years uh, as a Marine officer, uh, traveled some more, uh, went back to uh, the Central Texas area, spent eight years in San Marcos, uh, and then uh, my wife's job took us up to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, heard about uh, what was then Texas Wesleyan, it's now Texas A&M School of Law in Fort Worth, and they had a an evening program, and I'd always thought I would like to do that, so I, I pursued that. And about the time I finished in late 2006, uh, we moved to Waco. Again, uh, my wife uh, took a job there, and I started here in this district attorney's office. I was hired by Lowell Thompson uh, in May of 2007, the day I got the results from my bar exam. Uh, spent 12 years working under Lowell, did Uh, Pretty much every attorney job in the office started out prosecuting misdemeanors, handling the JP court, handled all our juvenile cases for a couple of years, handled our civil uh, cases for a couple of years, and then moved up to felony, uh, prosecuted a lot of big drug cases, um, and some of just about everything from manslaughter to uh, child abuse to homicide. and then uh, after Lowell's passing, I felt moved to, uh, to run for that job and uh, feel blessed that I was uh, successful in that effort. And so I'm now back in the office getting my feet on the ground. Wow. So it sounds like you have uh, a lot of experience uh, working in the district attorney's office. And so um, I did attend your, uh, your swearing in on the, the 1st of January. And so um, you, uh, you got a chance to introduce your, you know, your, your staff that you had um, hired. And so um, are you, um, are, does your staff come with a lot of experience as well? Some of them do. All of them have been attorneys for uh, at least two years. Uh, some of them much more than that. Uh, I think Mr. Dickens has been an attorney for about 40 years. Uh, Mr. McKay, my first assistant, has been an attorney for, I guess, 33 years. And then I have a couple who were around the seven or eight year mark. And um, 
and all of the all of my paralegals are either certified paralegals uh, who have spent time working in the private sector for private practice attorneys, or they have worked for many years uh, here in the courthouse. Okay, so what is your what is your vision for the district attorney's office? What is your vision for them for your office? Well, let me answer you this way. My view is that our overall mission, um, our purpose is to keep the citizens of Navarro County safe and their property secure by working with law enforcement. And the ultimate goal is to minimize crime. I'm, I'm, uh, I realize we're never going to eliminate all crime. I'm not worried about the job security. Um, but I see our purpose as doing whatever we can do to minimize crime uh, in the community. And that, that comes in a lot of different forms. So when it comes down to when you say minimize crime, um, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot, you know, so of course, you know, we have drug issues, you know, in our community. And so what is the direction that you're going to take regarding drug cases or, you know, just any type of offices concerning drug, uh, drug, drug cases? Glad you asked, because um, addressing the drug issue is at the very top of my priority list. Um, I'm kind of a numbers guy, and I, I pulled some numbers this afternoon. Uh, we don't have December numbers uh, reported from the courts yet, but um, just looking at the the first 11 months of uh, 2020, January through November, 31% of the felony cases filed were possession of felony drugs, methamphetamine, cocaine, uh, PCP, heroin. Um, another 6% were either manufacture or delivery of felony drugs. And then we have what we call property crimes. 5% um, of all the felonies last year were burglaries, and another 9% of all felonies were theft. And so if you add that up, that's 51% of all the felonies in Navarro County the first 11 months of last year were attributable to drugs because the vast majority of our property crimes, burglary, theft, you know, stealing in its various forms, are driven by by drugs. And that doesn't even include include violent offenses, some of which are, are caused by drugs, but it's hard to know how many uh, forgeries, credit card abuse. And then even outside of the criminal realm, uh, the courts spend a lot of time and resources on child protective services cases, cases where children have been removed from their parents by the state, and then almost all of those is due to drug abuse and dependence. And so recognizing that drugs are driving the majority of our crime, my plan is a two-pronged response. Prong number one is to start what I'm going to call a recovery court docket, sometimes called drug court, but those in the business tell me that recovery court is, is the more appropriate uh, label. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to the judges about it uh, last year. Obviously couldn't really move on it until I was in this position, but they know it's coming. 
I've talked to, visited many other counties who have uh, programs going and gathered a lot of literature and, and forms and whatnot from them. And the, the vision is it's really not an entirely new court. It's just a special set of cases designed to identify people that come into the justice system due to drug abuse or drug dependence and to put those people in an intensive program of counseling, supervision, and drug testing that is basically broken into three phases. And the first phase is very intensive. It's reporting um, several times a week, um, potential drug testing uh, on a random draw system uh, daily. And then the, the, the program steps down in intensity as uh, the individual, you know, performs and, and, and accomplishes certain uh, benchmarks within the program. Overall, it should last between nine and eighteen months. Um, mm-hmm. Someone who really just sailed through and, and was really uh, diligent and didn't have any relapses or whatever could potentially complete nine months. Um, but the whole thing should be done at at a, at a maximum of eighteen months. And um, there's some cost involved. Uh, treatment and supervision and testing is, is, is you know, costs money. Um, yeah. But the way I see it, future crimes also cost money, and incarceration costs a lot of money. Yeah. So, so that's prong one of my response to to the drug problem that drives so much of our crime. And to be fair, prong two is vigorous prosecution of people that are dealing. Uh, drugs, and I, and I mean felony drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine are the big ones here. And and I'd, I'd like to say that I empathize with people who are, who are really suffering from addiction. I've, I've spent a lot of time in our course, and I've seen many, many, many people who have lost their livelihood, their children, their possessions, and their freedoms um, as a result of uh, drug dependence. And maybe in part because of that, I have no sympathy for people who will profit from selling drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine and heroin that deepens the addiction of uh, their customers who are losing everything that they had in life. Um, and I'll say that I've, I've been meeting with our law enforcement people, and, and I have been, and many of our law enforcement officers have been frustrated and disappointed at seeing people that we know we're selling drugs in the community put back on the street, you know, over and over again. And um, I, I'm going to work to change that. So how do we, so how can, how do we break the, the cycle? Because, um, you know, you know, I've been, you know, part of the law enforcement community for over 30 years. And so when I started and working uh, as a police dispatcher, um, you know, it was crack cocaine. That was in the early, that was, I was, I started in 89, early nineties. And so, you know, crack cocaine was heavy. And then, so now fast forward 2021, you know, that, you know, like, like you said, now we have methamphetamine, we have, you know, uh, you know, the synthetic drugs and all that. So how can we break the cycle? Because now, you know, we're dealing with the, you know, you know, uh, you know, manufactured type drugs or, you know, synthetic drugs. And so now we have more younger people. We have, you know, like vaping going on. And so how can we break the cycle as a community? 
Well, clearly there's not an easy answer to that question or somebody would have done it by now. And yeah. uh, clearly uh, it's a problem and it's a, it's a, it's a problem here, um, but we're not alone in, in that problem. And the justice system is, uh, you know, we have limited tools for rehabilitation. And everybody's competing for uh, for resources. Um, I think that uh, you need to provide an opportunity at treatment and counseling, and at the same time, you've got to. There's got to be a rigorous testing program. I've talked to a lot of people in other jurisdictions who have recovery court programs. Some of them have been quite successful, and they all tell me that. You've got to provide the counseling and what have you, but you've also got to have a rigorous testing program. And I've talked to people who have been the products of recovery court programs. Former addicts have gone through this, and they also say a big part of what made them successful is knowing that on any given day they might be required to go, you know, take a test, and, and if that, you know, if they failed that test. Um, there could be uh, there could be real consequences, and so we need to provide that. It takes it takes a lot of effort. It takes man hours. It takes money. Um, but like I said, future crimes cost a lot of money uh, as well. Yeah. At the same time, what makes part of what makes it more difficult is we have limited ability to change people's environment. I mean, short of incarcerating them. When we put someone on probation or community supervision, um, we generally can't control where they're going to go live and who they're going to go uh, associate with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the experts tell me that a big part of the breaking the cycle for an individual is changing the people that they're associating with, the places that they're hanging around, and... You know, we have limited ability to to do that. And and also, there are some people who get into the justice system, but they're not ready to do what it takes to uh, to break their addiction. And, um, you know, we can lead the horse to the water, we can provide the water, um, but we can't make them drink. And uh, so I think we owe it to them to give a... a good faith, diligent effort at providing them with the resources to, uh, to recover and to understand that some number of relapses is, is, is part of the recovery process. Um, but there comes a point where we need to, to make some hard decisions about uh, how much taxpayer resources we're spending putting all these resources, making them available uh, it's someone who's not who's not ready to take advantage of them yet. Hmm. So, uh, so will the will the district attorney's office will they be, um, I guess, transparent? Um, will you have um, access to social media as far as putting out a district attorney's, you know, maybe page or you know how how involved will you be as far as in being transparent? Well, that that is a good question. And I will, I'm going to give credit. I know it's not shout-out time yet, but, 
but I'm, I'm going to give credit and, and confess that uh, I, I'm planning to plagiarize Sheriff Tanner's uh, Sheriff's Roundup mm. and to put out on a periodic basis some benchmark numbers uh, by which we will measure our own performance. Mm -hmm. and, and I haven't said exactly what those are, but just by way of example, one of the numbers that we watch is the jail population. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that costs money. We don't want it too high. And at the same time, I, I'm going to say, I don't, I, it's not my ambition to get the jail population to zero. There's a reason we have a jail. There's some people who need to be there who are a threat to the community, but we don't, we want the right people being there and, and we want to minimize the stay in jail of people who don't need to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, the case backlog. And now I'm, I'm pretty sure that the case backlog of the backlog of, of felonies and misdemeanors right now is as high as it's ever been in Navarro County. It's, it's as high as it's ever been since I've been in working in Navarro County for 13 years. I pulled this morning. The county court has 1,865 pending open misdemeanor cases. Wow. And between the district court and Judge Putman's court, they split the felony uh, criminal case dockets. We have 1,193 pending felony cases uh, right now in on the dockets. And I don't think that includes uh, motions to revoke probation, cases that have been already been resolved by probation, and there's been a, uh, a motion brought back to the court because of violation of probation uh, uh, conditions doesn't include uh, juvenile cases, certainly doesn't include all the traffic tickets over in the JP courts, and yeah. who knows how many thousands of those there are. Uh, and so it is, uh, you know, it's it's a big task. We've got our work cut out for us, and we've got a lot of work to, to do, and most of us are new to those cases, and we need to get ourselves familiar with them, see if there are cases that we can work out, and then, frankly, there are going to be some cases that we're going to identify that are probably just going to have to go to trial. And those, yeah. but I want those to be the serious cases: the murders, the child molesters. Yeah. Those are the cases that, um, if, if we need to go to trial and spend the resources, that's where to spend those resources because those are the people who are uh, a threat to the community, and they're going to keep the crime rate up if they're not um, kept off the street. So you met with challenges because of COVID. Are you having to put um, certain procedures in place because of COVID? Absolutely. As far as, you know, courts and, you know, contact with the Absolutely. public. We are, we are limited, and there have been many, many, I think the last count it was 32 or 33 covid related orders that have been passed down by the Supreme Court of Texas that dictates um, uh, procedures and how we proceed and how we can't proceed. And um, basically, we we haven't had any jury trials since February wow. uh, because of COVID. And we're, we're working out a way to uh, uh, to do that but it's very, very difficult because uh, the mandates require masks and face shields. And the, the hard part is 
the jury selection process because in order yeah. to get a jury of, of 12 people for a felony trial, and, and we inevitably have at least one alternate, one or two, um, you've got to start with a pool of about 75 or 80 people at a minimum because of all the various things that, that disqualify people. And so the trick is, where can you bring together that many people, have them all stay socially distanced, mm-hmm. and be in an environment where the court and the attorneys can ask them questions and see their responses and, and go through the process that the law provides for uh, selecting a fair jury to hear a case. And the only answer that anyone's come up with is uh, the IWF facility. And there have been plans made put in place to, to use that for the jury selection process because it's the only venue that's big enough and open enough to accommodate that many people and still adhere to uh, social distancing and, and the mm. protocols that we have uh, because of COVID. So it has really limited us. And um, a lot of times what, what gives both the state and the defense an incentive to reach plea deals and, and, and work out cases without going to trial is the knowledge that if they don't reach an agreement, sooner or later the judge is going to say, okay, you're going to trial. Hmm. And right now we don't, we don't have that. There isn't any uh, um, prospect of having to take the case to trial out on the horizon. And so um, it's harder to um, it's harder to move cases, and that's oh, part wow. of why the background is so big. Yeah, so you so you've actually uh, you know stepped into to this position with you know this you know some challenges you know because you have you know you have COVID going on, you have the backlog going on, so it sounds like you have your work cut out for you for a while, you know. So we, we um, do, and you know we have to we have to be more proactive about reaching out to the other side and saying, hey, what are we doing about this case? Um, You know, is this something that we really need to let sit for, you know, however long until we go to trial? And and frankly, um, we're probably going to have to make some deals that uh, we otherwise wouldn't um, just to to keep cases moving and, and control that that backlog on the on the docket and so we're gonna have to be very selective about only taking the most serious egregious offenses and saying okay yeah we're if we need to wait you know until COVID is is resolved in order to have a trial you know we'll do that but we can't do that on every case or the backlog will just get totally out of control. Hmm. Well, Mr. Thompson, um, um, I, I asked this question with uh, one of our uh, former police chiefs. Uh, chiefs, uh, he's on. He was on my podcast uh, a few weeks ago. It was GM Cox, and I asked him the question about uh, criminal justice reform. What, do you, what is your take on criminal justice reform? I think that. Um, uh, I think that there probably needs to be some reform. It is it's probably a much more complicated issue than um, than most people uh, perceive. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in community outreach. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, law enforcement has gotten a lot of bad press over, yeah. over the last year at the national level. And mm-hmm. some of that um, clearly deserved and some of it probably not so fairly. Um, but I think that it, it, it's coming. I think it has reached a, a level of attention that there is going to be um, increased uh, scrutiny. And um, to some degree, that, that's a healthy thing. You know, and I've yeah. talked to law enforcement officers and I said, you know, the level of scrutiny is, is higher than it's ever been. Um, you need to, you know, to be careful. And one of the things that we need to do as the DA's office is we need to work with law enforcement um, and improve their proficiency in what they can do and what they can't do and what have you. Um, because if, if they can't prove us, bring us a case that we can uh, be successful with in the courtroom, then it's, it's a bunch of wasted resources and, and, you know, it's, it's bad for many, many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I also think that we need to, um, we need to, anytime that we can arrange for positive interactions between our young people and law enforcement, uh, we need to do that. Yes. Um, to, to sort of combat some of the, the impression that, you know, that they get in the media. And some of the, yeah. some of the bad press in the media is earned. Um, but, you know, the media is not perfect either. And, yeah. and law enforcement officers aren't perfect. And I've and I talked to them, and I thought, you know, I'm not, you know, I understand that, that everybody makes mistakes, but um, I'll also tell you that I have prosecuted law enforcement officers here in Navarro County where they were intentionally doing something that was criminal and they, and they, and they knew it was criminal. Um, and, and I'll do it again. Uh, and, and I've, I've met with lots and lots of law enforcement officers over the past year. Uh, and I've told them, you know, we're happy to help. We have provide training and, and what have you, uh, call us anytime you need. And they do frequently. Um, but I don't, as I, as I put it, I don't, I don't have any sacred cows. If you know yeah. somebody commits an offense, you know, a criminal offense, and there's a provable case, I don't care who they are. I don't care who they're related to. Um, you know, nobody's, nobody's above the law. Yeah. So do you think it's, it's very imperative that, you know, you know, I believe, I believe in community policing that, uh, you know, you need to know your community, you know, and your community needs to know you. You know, because sometimes, you know, that used to be a big thing, community policing. And so, um, to me, having that having that engagement with the community, that, that, that establishes some form of relationship, you know. And sometimes when you don't form a relationship with the community, that's when you get that pushback. Would you, would you say? Um, true. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's, it's sometimes... It's harder to do than it is to say. Yeah. And um, and there's unfortunately there's miscommunication and and frequently frustration on on both sides. 
Um, I, you know, I, I know that there, there are times that, uh, that officers get frustrated because they feel like they're, they're constantly responding to calls in certain parts of the community, and then they get there and, and you know, they, they encounter people that, that don't want to cooperate for, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frustrating to, uh, to the officers, but then it's frustrating to the citizens over there because they see, well, the police are always over here. But, you know, there's still crime going on. They're not, they're not controlling the crime here in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. And I think that there is no perfect solution, but part of the solution is to have interactions between the community and law enforcement when there's not been a crime, when, when nobody's going away in handcuffs. And they're just getting together when you don't have all the pressure and tension going on um, so that they can have some positive experiences. And, and, and they don't only see the police when, you know, somebody's going to jail. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, um, uh, Mr. Thompson, um, I really have enjoyed you know, listening to you and, um, you know, the information that you've, that you've uh, given the, the listen audience and what I've learned, you know, from, you know, what, you know, what you have, uh, as you, what you're working on for your office. And so I, 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 I really, um, wish you the best, you know, and I know you do a good job. And so I always give my uh, guests a opportunity to give their shout outs to anybody on the listening audience. And once again, I want to thank you so much for accepting the invitation to be on Cannon Girl Speaks podcast. And so I'm going to give you, give you an opportunity to give you shout out to anybody you'd like to give you a shout out to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just shout out to, to express my gratitude to those who helped me to, to get to this position. And I, I would just ask that they they be patient with me as we, we get our, our hands around and get control of uh, what's obviously going to be a very big job. I'll tell you that I have confidence in the people that I've got around me to help me do this job, but be patient because uh, we're going to get it, get it uh, rolling right, but it's not going to happen overnight. So that's, that's right. I ask for your patience, and I, I, I give you my thanks for uh, helping me to get here. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. And um, I do, like I said, I wish you the best. I know you'll do a good job. You're, you're going to make Navarro County safe. And um, to my listening audience, you know, he's, you know, he's a phone call away. I know he's he's busy right now, you know, getting his office established. But like he said, just be patient with him and uh, he's going to he's going to do what he was elected to do. So with that being said, I want to thank you again so much for, for supporting Canada Girl Speaks podcast. Have a very good evening. Thank you so much. <laughs>